Thank you, Van. Uh, it's good to see everybody this morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and today it's going to be my privilege to lead us in our study of God's Word as we open together the book of Matthew. So if you have a copy of the Bible with you, I invite you to take it out. Turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the chair rack in front of you. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12 today. Here at Trinity, if you're new here, we have a high view of the Bible. We believe that the Bible is God's word. It's how he speaks to us, how he reveals to us who he is, who we are, and how we should live in light of this reality of, of his presence with us. And so we do a type of teaching here called expository teaching, where we open up a book of the Bible and we work through it sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. We want to understand what it says in its original context and then take that meaning and apply it to our lives today. Uh, and right now, that has us in the middle of a study of the book of Matthew, this, uh, this divine biography of the life of Jesus Christ. And this morning, in chapter 5, as we look at verses 1 through 12, we're going to be introduced to a sermon of Jesus for the first time, quite possibly the most famous sermon in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. If you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, a little piece of paper that's got the text, it's got some space for notes, uh, you can slip your hand up and Alex will make sure that, uh, that you get one of those from the back. It'll help you follow along with us this morning as we study this great sermon of Jesus Christ. So the sermon spans in the book of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So we're going to spend the next several months covering all the, the deep and rich content that is here in this sermon. Um, and if you've spent much time in the church... There's probably a lot in here that's going to be very familiar to you. And I want to urge you this morning and as we go through these next several weeks, several months, to fight against that. Because make no mistake, these words that Jesus is saying would not sound familiar to the people of his day as the disciples and the crowds heard this for the first time. What he has to say here flips many of his culture's spiritual norms on their heads. And I'd argue that despite our familiarity with his words, what he has to say still flips our culture's spiritual norms on their heads today. The picture that Jesus paints here of true spirituality, true spirituality, of true faith, of the people that God blesses and favors, is not a picture that lines up with what our expectations would say, with what our culture's expectations would say. So on the one hand, there's a lot familiar here. And on the other hand, there should be and there will be a lot that's, that's very counterintuitive to us. Lean into that this morning and throughout the bulk of this study. For example, on the one hand, in the text we're looking at today, Jesus is going to be pronouncing blessings. And hey, who doesn't want to be blessed, right? We spend our lives seeking God's blessing. We spend our lives asking for God's blessing. We've even hashtagged it, right? Hashtag blessed. You see that all over your Facebook and your Twitter posts this week. But if I laid out to you two choices, two ways to, to, to attain the path of blessing, grief, suffering, and poverty on the one hand, and happiness, success, and comfort on the other, would it be a difficult choice for you to make? Which one is the pathway to happiness? Which one is the pathway to being blessed? If we offer that same deal to 100 people on the street this afternoon, although with the snow we might not find 100 people on the street, but let's say that we did. If we offered that deal, that choice to 100 people, do you think anybody would choose the pathway of grief and suffering and poverty? Yet as Jesus pronounces these eight blessings we're going to look at this morning, it's precisely the grief-stricken, 
the suffering and the poor that he identifies as blessed. How can this be? How can that be the pathway to blessing? And how should this reshape then our thinking and our living? If we're walking this way that says that comfort and riches and wealth and success, this is the pathway to being blessed. If Jesus is holding out, nope, it's a different pathway, how do we need to recorrect? How do we need to get on the right path? Well, this morning, let's dive into Matthew 5 and let's find out together. So read with me, Matthew 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he, being Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pray with me as we we study this passage today. Our God and Father, giver of these surprising words. As we open them this morning, as we study them, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us. By your Spirit's power and for the sake of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're looking this morning at this collection of sayings that is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. If you've got your Bible in front of you, that's probably the, the header for this section of text, verses, five, or verses 1 through 12 of chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Why, why do we call it this? Is it because it sounds really spiritual? It does kind of sound kind of spiritual. Um, but the reason that these are called the Beatitudes is pretty simple. In the 4th century Latin translation of the Bible, known as the Vulgate, each saying begins with the Latin word, Beati, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering that, Alex, but you can just look the other way. Uh, anyhow, the word translates as happy or blessed. Blessed is, blessed are. This is the repetition. And so the Beatitudes is, is the name that has been commonly given to this collection of Jesus' sayings. What Jesus is holding out here to us in these verses is a pathway to spiritual happiness or blessing. And right off the bat, As everybody's listening very closely, I mean, who doesn't want the pathway to happiness and blessing, right? Right off the bat, it takes a very unexpected turn. We're going to notice a theme in these verses, and that is that the people Jesus identifies as blessed, as happy, are not the people we would expect to be identified as blessed and happy. And so here in verse 3, as he gives the first one, he says that those who are poor in spirit are blessed. For the kingdom of heaven will belong to them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, so what we're going to have to do first, if we want to understand what he's saying here, is ask, what exactly does it mean to be poor in spirit? Who are these people that Jesus is talking about here? 
What's it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, the easiest way to understand it is with this imagery that Jesus is giving us, this imagery of poverty. Right? A lot of times the, the words, the pictures that Jesus paints with his words are here to help us get a, get a grasp on what it is he's saying. He's speaking to great crowds. Like, this is not a scholarly lecture that he gives at the temple courts in Jerusalem to, this, to the high priest or to the Sanhedrin. This is Jesus on a mountainside with people coming to hear him, and he speaks in a way that is easy for them to understand. He's not trying to give riddles and puzzles that we have to figure out, but instead he paints a very vivid picture here. So, for instance, with this idea of being poor in spirit, I want you in your mind right now, when I say the word poverty, what kind of image flashes into your head? I would dare say it's not difficult for you to to conjure up a very vivid image of what poverty looks like. Maybe it's something that you've seen on TV. Maybe it's, you know, the homeless person you pass on your way into work. But you've got a very clear picture of this notion of this is what poverty looks like. This is what it looks like to be poor. Jesus here is pronouncing blessing on those whose spiritual state and attitude looks like that imagery. Jesus is pronouncing a blessing on those whose spiritual state and attitude looks like that imagery of poverty. Uh, Pastor and and writer A.W. Tozer says, The poor in spirit have reached an inward state paralleling the outward circumstances of the common beggar on the streets of Jerusalem. So the people that Jesus is speaking to here, they would have known what poverty looks like. Some of them would have been in that boat. They would have seen beggars on the path as they come into the city, as they are in the town square. Jesus is saying here that those whose spiritual condition matches their physical condition are blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To them belongs the kingdom. These who are poor in spirit are actually rich, possessing something that will never see an end date. So let me ask you this. How many of you, show of hands, are planning to go panhandling this afternoon? Anybody got that on the docket after you get out of here this morning? No? Why not? Well, I'm assuming because you don't need to, right? Nobody in here has the need to humble themselves to get money in that way in order to buy their lunch. You guys probably have lunch plans. You're going to go to one of the like five Trinity-approved restaurants that we go to every single week, and you're going to go and pick up lunch, and you're going to pay for it, and and you feel comfortable there. So you don't need to go and stand out in the snow and in the freezing cold and beg people for money because you don't need it. You don't need to. The poor ask... The poor beg because they need. And in the same way, the poor in spirit ask God because they need. Because they realize their emptiness and their dependency on him. So let's ask the question in a different way. Do you regularly ask God to make you more like Jesus? Do you regularly ask him to make you more loving? More humble? More compassionate? more selfless? If your answer is no, then I'd challenge you that you don't for the same reason that you don't go panhandling this afternoon. Because you don't think you need it. You think you can take care of yourself so you're not desperate enough to ask him to give you what you cannot attain for yourself. Jesus says the poor in spirit are the ones who will get what they need and more. They'll inherit a kingdom, a kingdom that as we'll begin to see as we we trace Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is forever, that has no end, a blessedness that will never run out. 
But what Jesus identifies as the pathway to inheriting that kingdom is emptiness. His need is spiritual poverty. And we spend much of our lives trying to avoid any feeling of need. Yet Jesus says here, it's precisely what we need in order to be satisfied. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So right off the bat, we've already got a saying that's surprising to us. It's a bit of a gut punch. It causes me to ask some questions about myself, and I don't really love all the answers. And this is just the first one. We've got eight of these we're looking forward to this morning. Side note, I think I'm setting the record for most sermon points at Trinity. So, Dave, beat that. And it doesn't get any easier from here, right? Look at the next one, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus says that the pathway to happiness and blessing goes through mourning, because they will be comforted. Again, this runs counter to every instinct that I've got. I'm assuming it does the same for you. We'll do anything to avoid grief. We run from sickness. We run from sorrow. We run from death. We want to to keep ourselves as far from those things as possible. I would dare say that the majority of my prayer life and yours is praying for things that will keep grief and sorrow away. Praying for circumstances that will keep us isolated and insulated from this type of living. We want happy endings. We fear the dark and lonely nights when life seems like a bleak and hopeless affair. So why would Jesus say that mourners are blessed? I mean, sure, it's nice to be comforted, right? That's the tag at the end. Blessed are the mourners, for they shall be comforted. And it is indeed, when you're sad, it's nice to be comforted. It's nice to have someone come up, put their arms around you, encourage you. But but wouldn't it be better to just not be sad in the first place? Why is this grief and mourning comforting. Well, because grief has a way of confronting us with a truth that was there all along, but it's hard for us to see, and that is that we deeply need God. Side note, are you noticing a theme with these first two? Need, dependency are the pathway to blessing and happiness. A lot of times in scripture, the Bible talks about suffering and and, and trials as testing our faith, right? And I think we think of that sometimes as like, well, God is testing us to see how we're going to do. Like, as a teacher, you test your students to see if they're going to pass or not. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But I would argue that when the Bible talks about testing of our faith, it's not really the same there. That God is not testing us in order to figure out how we're going to come out the other side. He's testing us to teach us something. That it's we who need to understand something about our faith. It's we that need to understand our dependence on him. Author C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, uh, a, I just drew a blank on the title of the book, but that's not important right now. In one of his books, where he's a grief observed, that's it, a grief observed. Um, Lewis lost his wife to cancer when they were both relatively young and went through a period of deep mourning. And he wrote this book that, that talked about his struggles with grief and with sadness uh, and wrestling with God and how to deal with those things. And in, in his book, he says, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. That grief 
exposes the fact that we need God. We spend our lives building a house of cards to, to, to convince ourselves that we're actually okay on our own. We're not in need. We're not weak. But when grief comes and it knocks the house down, there's no avoiding our weakness. There's no avoiding our need. Consider Job, a righteous man, wealthy, great family, fantastic life. And yet when God strips everything from him, takes away every possible source of joy, or so it would seem, what does he end up saying in the end? He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, Job 42.5. Job was hashtag blessed, if ever there was one. Like this guy had a great life, materially, in his relationships, in his spiritual vitality. And yet he says, I never knew you like I knew you when it was all stripped away. When grief brought me low. It's in our grief that we learn what true comfort is. That we learn to stop relying on all the false walls that we've put up. The false roof we've put over our heads and we realize that God alone can sustain me. When God is all I have left, then I'm forced to lean into that. And so Jesus says that those who mourn, those who are stricken with grief, they are blessed. They are happy because they will know what true comfort looks like. They will rest in the arms of their Father in heaven. Like the hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When God exposes our foundation for what it is through grief, then we can we can rebuild on the right foundation, on the rock of Christ. Grief brings comfort. Next, in verse 5, Jesus pronounces a blessing on the meek, right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So first off, this is a word we don't use a ton these days, right? I would, I would dare say meek probably never entered your vocabulary over the last seven days. If you did use it, then you can tell me later and the whole illustration falls apart. But I don't think this is a word we use a whole lot, which means we need to ask, what does it mean to be meek? Because I think our most common assumption is that meekness is weakness, right? I mean, they sound alike. They're, they're only a, a one syllable off. And a lot of the same qualities that we see in weakness kind of come out in meekness. So aren't they the same thing? Not exactly. So the Greek word, the Greek root here means mild or gentle. And it's the same term that Jesus will use of himself later on in the book of Matthew in chapter 11 when he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, there's the word right there, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Meekness is not weakness. I would posit to you this morning that meekness is strength that is channeled to seek the good and comfort of others instead of self. Meekness is strength that is channeled to seek the good and comfort of others instead of of self. Meekness is being willing to be wronged rather than lashing out in anger. It's refusing to insist on your own way if it means you're able to do good to those around you. It's not tearing others down so that you can feel better about yourself by comparison. Meekness sees its ultimate expression in Jesus being led to his death like a lamb to the slaughter. Refusing to strike back at those who mock him or call a legion of angels down to wipe the floor with the whole sorry lot. Look at the example of Jesus in his meekness as he goes to the cross. It's not weakness. 
Jesus doesn't fail to fight back because he's incapable of failing to fight back. As he says, like, if I wanted to, we would shut this thing down right now. Jesus is not weak. His meekness comes out in his refusing to lash out in that way because he was working for the good of the very people who were wronging him. That by restraining himself and exercising self-control and not striking back, he was accomplishing something bigger, better for their good, for our good. He was bringing about salvation. So in his meekness, he is gentle, he is restrained in order to bring about their good. And God, Jesus says here, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right now, our world says that this kind of meekness makes you a doormat, right? If you let people walk all over you and don't assert yourself, then you're going to get nowhere and everybody's just going to use you. And yet Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. They're going to be the ones who enjoy the fruits of all this world has to offer. The new heavens and the new earth will belong to them. See, our world says that it's assertiveness that conquers. Assertiveness gets you ahead in life. Jesus says the meek are going to inherit the earth. And this one really runs sharply counter to our culture today. We're very easily tempted to this idea that it's strength and assertiveness that is really needed in order to get ahead. Look at our political discourse today. Here's the most glaring example of it, right? Like, our political discourse is really known for meekness, right? Really known for gentleness. Now, we don't discuss and debate. Like, whenever you read an argument, when you get on Facebook or Twitter and somebody's political post comes across, it's always about, watch this guy own these liberals, or, or watch them destroy this conservative argument. Like everybody's owning people or destroying people, and, and it's, a, it's a fight, it's a knockdown, teardown. I've got to not only say that you're wrong, I've got to make you look like a moron in the process and mock and defame. We think that nice guys, people like Jesus, are fine in the church, But out in the real world, we need a tough guy who isn't afraid to run people over if we want to see our agenda get ahead. Everything about our culture today says meekness is a joke. You really want to get ahead? You got to put yourself out there. Don't be afraid to get your hands a little dirty. Don't be afraid to strong arm somebody. To let the world see that you are right and they are wrong. And yet Jesus will have none of that. If ever there were somebody who could run people over, run his opponents over, it's Jesus. He's always right. He's God. He has infinite power at his disposal. And yet, what does he do? Time and time and time again, he restrains himself. He humbles himself so that he can bring about the good of others. And if Jesus' people follow in Jesus' footsteps, they will find themselves happy, blessed. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Weakness is actually the pathway to righteousness. The next blessing is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will find themselves satisfied. This much like our earlier talk about being poor in spirit, focus in on the imagery here. See the picture that Christ is painting with his words. What does it mean to hunger and to thirst for righteousness? Well, let's hone in on that hunger and thirst language. Anybody hungering for a cheeseburger right now? Maybe some bacon, lettuce, mayo, sliced tomato, some french fries. Anyone thirsting for a tall glass of sweet tea, maybe an ice cold Coke? 
can almost taste it right now. See, this is the great thing about this illustration is the longer I preach, the better it gets, which usually they run the other way around. What about right after lunch today? You're going to go out from here. We're going to go out, get something to eat, maybe go home, cook something, and you're going to sit down at about 1 o'clock and you're going to be like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to ever eat again. Are you going to be hungering and thirsting then? No. Why not? Because you're full. Because you no longer are empty. You no longer need. You'll be full and satisfied, not weak and in need. Jesus is saying here that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, i.e. those who realize their lack of it, who feel it, who desperately desire it, they will be satisfied by God who gives freely. If we hunger and thirst, if we realize, again, look at this theme time after time. If we realize our weakness are in our dependency upon God, then we shall find ourselves satisfied. We are looking for a righteousness that comes from somewhere else that I don't already possess. It's not mine. Paul in Philippians 3, 8, and 9 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. And he has just at this point talked about all of these righteous traits and heritage that he possesses. He said, I count it all as loss. Don't care about it. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If I could summarize that in a sentence for you, it'd be this. If you're satisfied with your own righteousness, you'll eventually find yourself hungry. If you realize your emptiness, and because of that you hunger and thirst after righteousness that comes from God, you will find yourself filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. If you're not hungry, if you're self-satisfied, you're going to find that you eventually come up empty. Next, in verse 7, Jesus blesses the merciful saying that they will themselves receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, in our church circles, we tend to think about this idea of mercy, I think, purely in a spiritual perspective, right? A lot of times, we can almost make it a synonym with forgiveness, that mercy and forgiveness are the same thing. But that's part of it. But there's more at play with this word than just simply forgiveness of wrongs. The word in Greek is eliemon. And its focus is on being compassionate and full of pity for other people. So there, there's more than just a spiritual forgiveness. There is, this is compassion. This is generosity when we talk about this idea of being merciful. It's why you, know, you might hear people talk about um, mercy ministries of a church. where reaching out, feeding homeless, giving to causes, things like that. We call those mercy ministries because we are exercising this idea of mercy, compassion, generosity. Jesus says those who are merciful towards others will receive mercy themselves. See, our world says look out for yourself. We're tempted to think that if if I spend, I mean, we we should give some, right? Everybody knows that. But if I spend all my effort and energy caring for other people, then who's going to look out for me? Like, give, but make sure that you keep your me time and you protect that me time really, really close. You know what this makes me think of? when we hear Jesus say that it's actually the merciful who are going to be satisfied, it makes me think of George Bailey. It's a Wonderful Life. Everybody's seen It's a Wonderful Life, most everybody, I hope. George Bailey, the central character of this movie, 
uh, he spends all his life and all his energy looking out for others, right? And you look throughout this entire movie, and he's always looking to, to give to those around him. He's a very selfless person, very merciful person in this sense. Like, he's even about to leave for his honeymoon, right, as a big, the big banking crash happens. And he ends up using his honeymoon money to loan to people so that they can survive this banking crash and it stabilizes the family business. Like, he sacrifices here. And in so many ways in the movie, he sacrifices where I'm tempted to say, like, dude, I mean, just take a break and do something for yourself. Go on vacation. Take your wife on your honeymoon. Like, but consistently, he gives over and over and over. And yet... What happens in the movie? At the, at the end, when his own fortunes look bleak and hopeless, a host of people who have benefited from his generosity return the favor to him and then some. He finds himself richly blessed by this massive crowd of singing people at the end of the, at the, end of the movie. He who is merciful receives mercy. It's a very vivid picture of this reality that Jesus is talking about here. Like the world tells us, look out for yourself. Do whatever you can, whatever you have to, to preserve your own peace, your own sanity. And we're even tempted to import that into the church, right? Like, serve, but, but not, not too much. You know, don't, don't wear yourself out. Don't, don't go crazy with it. But what does Jesus say? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All of our instincts of self-preservation end up losing. And Jesus says, the one who's willing to give everything, to lose his life, he's going to find it. He's going to find rich satisfaction. That the givers are the ones who are satisfied. The merciful shall receive mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now this one actually might seem to break the pattern, right? The pattern of blessings coming to a surprising category of people. Because after all, most people would agree purity of heart is a good thing, right? We should pursue after that. I, I'd suggest to you, people may pay lip service to that idea, but really, most people live like craftiness and deception go a long way too, right? Most people live like, as long as you can keep a good front up there, that's what's really going to advance your agenda. We're tempted to think that virtue is external, that it's all about things that we do. And virtue is about the actions that we take and the things that we do. But in what will become a theme with Jesus' teaching, he here is emphasizing that God is even more concerned with our hearts than he is with our actions. He's more concerned with the purity of our heart, of our motives, of our thoughts, than he is with what comes out on the outside. Why? Because those things, our hearts, will drive what we do. They will cause our actions to flow from the condition of our hearts. And so Jesus says it's those with pure and sincere hearts, not those who are pros at putting on a good front. They're the ones that will see God. John Calvin said this. He said, Christ pronounces those to be happy who take no delight in cunning, but converse sincerely with men and express nothing by word or look which they do not feel in their heart. Simple people are ridiculed for want of caution and for not looking sharply enough to themselves. But Christ directs them to higher views. That's, that's still true today, right? People who are pure in heart, what do we, how are they slandered in the culture? Well, they're naive, right? Why would you, why would you say that? You've you, you got you to be smarter about the way that you portray yourself and about the way that you say things. You've got to do what you've got to do to get ahead in life. Don't be so naive, 
And yet Jesus says, those who are pure in heart will see God. They will come face to face with their creators and be satisfied in him. What does this purity of heart look like in the church? What means telling someone, I'll pray for you, and then actually praying for them. It means encouraging an aspiring preacher or musician, and then not spending lunch talking about all of their flaws. It means not telling your brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm I'm okay, when you're really anything but. This kind of purity in heart is about letting the picture you paint on the outside match what is truly there on the inside. It's sincerity. It's not, all right, here's what's really true about me inside, but we're going to stack the deck to make myself look this way so that I can achieve what I want. It's the pure in heart, those who are willing to, to speak simply, to say what they mean and mean what they say, who will find themselves face to face with God. Purity outgains craftiness. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And this one is, I, I love the, the tag on the end of this one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The peacemakers, Jesus says, they're going to be identified as God's kids. All right, we, we, we know about this idea of family resemblance, right? If you meet somebody's parents or brothers or sisters or kids, and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you bear the family resemblance. You, you look like your family. You act like them. You, you pick up their mannerisms, their passions, their interests. What is a peacemaker? What is a peacemaker, this one who is said to be of the family resemblance of God? Well, let's get literal with it. The Greek word here is a compound of the words for peace and the word for to make, manufacture, or construct. So let's think of it this way. A peacemaker is someone who is involved in the peace construction business. We all know about construction. You might drive down the road, see a house being built, see something being worked on. This word for peacemaker, this is about people who manufacture peace in the relationships of others. These are the people who are in God's family business. You ever try to play peacemaker among other people? You know, maybe sit here this morning and you think of, an, of a time when you tried to broker peace between two people who were at odds. It's risky, isn't it? Why is it risky? Because when you step into the crossfire between two people, you stand a decent shot of being shot yourself. A lot of times, when we get into a situation where we are in conflict and strife with somebody else and someone comes in between, conflict and strife, they're not, they're not scalpels. They're sledgehammers. So we'll swing and hit whoever might get in the way. It's a lot easier to just mind your own business, keep to yourself, and let everybody sort out their own mess. I'm not getting involved with that. Peacemaking is costly. It involves pain. It usually involves sacrifice, sometimes very significant sacrifice. It might cost you a relationship if it goes the wrong way. It might cost you a friend. It might shatter a relationship within your own family that never gets put back together in the same way again. And here, Jesus says that peacemakers, those who do that, who overcome their own comfort, who step out to intercede for others in that way, they will be called sons of God. It's easy to see the family resemblance, isn't it? When we put our own comfort aside and we're willing to be hurt and wronged in order to bring reconciliation between others, 
we will look a lot like our big brother. Christ interjected himself on our behalf, willing to suffer wrong, willing to suffer pain, willing to suffer to the point of death on a cross. When it would have been much easier to just say, you know what, you guys made your own bed, go sleep in it. He intercedes on our behalf. He interjects himself on our behalf. He's willing to suffer, to bear our mess. And here he says that those who are willing to do that for others will be called sons of God. They will look like me. They will look like their father who is in heaven because they will be in his business. They will be doing what he does. And then finally, righteous suffering is gain. It's what he says in verse 10 and and continues on in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this final blessing is twofold because first right there he says it in the general sense. General sense in the third person. If you are persecuted for righteousness sake, yours is the kingdom of heaven. But then in verse 11 he actually lasers it in and he speaks it directly to his followers personally. And says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Now, as counterintuitive as all of the other Beatitudes have sounded so far, this one probably takes the cake. This is probably the one that sounds the most out of what we would ordinarily expect. How can it be good to suffer? How can the pathway to blessing and happiness be unjust suffering? Suffering on Christ's account shows that we are united with him. And what the point that the scriptures make over and over and over is that if we're united with him in his suffering, we will be united with him in his glory. Right? Jesus' pathway to glory went through the trench of suffering. We just looked at his temptation at the hands of Satan in the wilderness. The temptation that Satan offers is the glory, skip the suffering. Let's go straight to the finish line, Jesus. And what does he do? He turns aside from that. He follows the path of his father. He knows glory awaits him. And he's not afraid to go through the suffering to get to the glory. Why on earth would we think that our pathway to glory would just allow us to skip the suffering when Jesus doesn't? It it makes no sense. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. There's that idea again. Rejoice. You're blessed. Be happy when you face trial. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I can't help but wonder if when Peter wrote those words to the churches that he was teaching, if he thought back to this memory of sitting on the mountainside and hearing Jesus say this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Peter wasn't always the quickest to get things. And a lot of times he spectacularly doesn't get things right off the bat. But I got to imagine here, 20, 30 years later, he's thinking back and he's understanding what Jesus meant sitting, listening to him preach this sermon for the first time, and he says, it's true. 
Rejoice when you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice when you see his glory and when you share in his glory. We can rejoice in our suffering because we know that our sufferings will not have the last word any more than Jesus' suffering and death had the last word over him. We look at Christ. We look at his suffering. We look at his resurrection and his glory, and we can know I'm going to be on a similar road. I will share in his glory just as I'm sharing in his suffering. What does this look like, practically speaking? Because you're not always going through suffering. What does this kind of attitude look like when suffering comes upon you? I would say to you, look at Early Rain Covenant Church in China. Early Rain is a church in China that has become a very public target of China's recent crackdown against the Christian faith, against religion. In China, Christianity is, is tolerated and largely has been for, for a couple of decades, but the government has, has become increasingly strict on unregistered house churches. Right now, China's fine with Christianity if you register with the government and you teach in accordance with their government's teaching. But when churches refuse to do that, the government sees them as a threat, as potentially insubordinate. They, they hold to an authority that is outside the bounds of the government, and so that's threatening to their power. And over the past few months, the Chinese government has increasingly started to crack down on house churches, and early reign is one that has very publicly been targeted. The church has been closed, its property has been seized, its members have been detained and scattered, uh, and the church's pastor, Wang Yi, has been imprisoned for the last three months, is still imprisoned currently, uh, detained in China. I want to read you an excerpt from a letter he wrote from prison entitled, My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. This has been making the rounds on social media over the last three months. It's striking when we hear his attitude. We hear what he thinks about in suffering. Separated from his kids, separated from his people, from his livelihood. He says this, he says, If I am imprisoned for a long or short period of time, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and of my Savior, then I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. But I know that only when I renounce all the wickedness of this persecution against the church and use peaceful means to disobey will I truly be able to help the souls of the authorities and law enforcement. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority. There is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me and that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life. And no one can raise me from the dead. Wang Yi is being persecuted for righteousness' sake on account of Jesus Christ, and he is blessed. He is happy. Not in some superficial sense that we tend to think of happiness, but he is filled with joy knowing that he is on the path that leads to eternal glory. 
That is the blessedness and the happiness that Jesus is calling us to here when he says, blessed are those of you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're going to inherit a kingdom that nobody can take away, that no one can snatch from you. Be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here's the task that is laid in front of us by Jesus. We are to go out and pursue these things. Here is your pathway to blessedness and to happiness. Good luck. Does it feel a little daunting to see this? My goodness, I didn't get past the first one without feeling like this whole thing, there is no way that I can walk this path. What are we supposed to do here? Do you feel crushed right now? Do you feel like a novice mountain climber staring up at Everest and knowing, (laughs) no way, never, never going to happen, never going to get there. Let's pack it up and go home. Feel like you're looking at that perfect Pinterest picture and know that there's absolutely zero chance that your recipe or craft or whatever it is will look half that good. Let's not even try. I've got good news for you actually this morning. You can't. You won't. You will not be able to do all of the things that Jesus has just laid out here. Before you can follow, you have to trust. Trust what? Trust that God will do what we cannot because Jesus has already done what we could not. We cannot attain perfect righteousness. But Jesus offers his to us freely by faith when we trust that his suffering and death on our account was able to save, when we trust that his suffering and his death was on account of what we have done and what we have failed to do, right? Jesus sends his spirit to live in us by faith, to strengthen us, to follow after him. And as we follow, we grow. Jesus doesn't give this sermon, and it's going to get even more difficult than what we've just seen. He's going to have even more hard sayings that chop our knees out from under us. He's not giving this, remember, as some teacher standing up on a pedestal saying, all right, go out, give it your best shot. He's inviting his disciples who walk in relationship with him to pursue the same path he's pursuing. You will never be able to live the kind of life Christ is calling you to here if you are not walking with Christ, if you do not know Christ, if you do not have him living within you. And that's what the Christian faith is. The world's religions say, work and you'll be accepted. Christianity says, you're accepted, so work. You're accepted because Christ has given his life to save you from your sin, to call you out of darkness and into his marvelous life. And so as we follow him, we will grow. Will also fail, but God will take even those failings and use them for good and use them for his glory. He is the master storyteller. And from your best efforts and your worst failings, he will build you into a kingdom and priest to God. He will build you, as Isaiah said in his prophecy, into a forest, oaks of righteousness, planted firmly into the glory of your Father. Author and filmmaker N.D. Wilson put it this way. He said, from it all, from the compost of our efforts, God brings glory. By his grace, we are the water made wine. We are the dust made flesh, made dust, made flesh again. We are the whores made brides, the thieves made saints, and the killers made apostles. We are the dead made 
living. How will you ever attain to this? By realizing that you can't. By realizing that you are poor in spirit. By hungering and thirsting after righteousness that you don't possess. By leaning into grief because it reminds you that you are frail and helpless. That you need God. The the reiterated theme of all of these Beatitudes is we need to come before Christ poor and needy because God fills and I can't. And when we realize that and we lean into this kind of living, we will find that in our victories and in our failures, Christ fills us up. So this morning, if you do not know Christ, if this is all brand new and it's washing over your mind and you're thinking, man, I've never heard this sermon before, or I've never heard this sermon in this way before. Put your trust in him. And as you do that, you will have the strength that you need to begin to follow this path. And if you're in Christ, and you're here this morning, and you feel like that hopeless climber at the foot of Everest, know that you have a guide who walks beside you, who will carry you to the top of the mountain. When you fall, he will be there to pick you up. He will strengthen you. He will teach you. You will be a better mountain climber a thousand feet up than you are right now because of his presence with you. This is the Savior who calls you to this blessed pathway, to this pathway to happiness and to true joy and satisfaction. Pray with me. God of grace, As we stand here and we look at this steep calling, at this picture of faithful living that that doesn't look like my living so much of the time. Father, we want the pathway that skips the grief. We want the pathway that's full of ease and comfort. Father, remind us that it's dependence on you that truly will bring us joy, and fulfillment. Father, I pray that you would put us on this path. Help us not to run from grief. Help us not to run from emptiness. Help us not to run from all of these things. But Father, use them to remind us to depend on you. Give us a righteousness that's not our own. Father, and help us to walk in in simple obedience, day by day, step by step, fall by fall. That we might give you glory, that we might live like this, that we might be people that walk this path, that the world, that our friends, that our family, that our neighbors, that our coworkers could look at and say, that's different. And it doesn't seem to make any sense. But there's something deeply attractive about it. Father, may they see you, not us. Point people to our elder brother who has perfectly walked this path and give him glory. Help us, Father. Give us strength in our weakness that you might be made great in all the earth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.